Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 126 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Good. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Looking forward to the weekend. Yeah, I am too. I am too. So before we dig into it, just want to recognize the strong performance of our Dayton Flyers this past weekend. Um, absolutely amazing. They beat Miami. Mm -hmm. They beat number four ranked Kansas. They beat Belmont and they obliterated Alabama state. This team, I don't know who they are, but I absolutely love what I'm seeing. I do too. I do too. That was a pretty uh, big shocker. I would say for them to win that tournament. And especially because they're, if I'm hearing this correctly, they are the first or second youngest Division One basketball team in the country right now. Think about that. And I think with that, they have a lot of raw talent. I think there should be a lot of credit to Anthony Grant and his staff for turning that around. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely exciting to, to watch over the long Thanksgiving holiday. So hopefully they can keep it rolling tomorrow. They play Northern Illinois, I believe, at home. Yeah, so shout out to Anthony Grant. Yeah, that was great. So hopefully they can keep it rolling. Um, before we uh, really get into things here, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are for the full month of November and year to date. And this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index down 0.83% for the month of November and up 22% for the year. The Dow down 3.73% for November, up 13.5% for the year. The NASDAQ positive 0.25% for November and up 18.5% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 4.33% for the month and up 11.3% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States down 4.26% for the month and up 4.4% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.05%. The two-year treasury yielding 0.64%. And the 10-year treasury yield is sitting at 1.45%. A couple observations for listeners. Look at that year-to-date Dow Jones number. It was over 20%. And mm -hmm. now it's only up 13.5. I say only because it's had a, a good, good size correction. And then look at the NASDAQ, which trailed the Dow all year, it feels like. Mm -hmm. And now they're up 18.5 compared to that 13.5 of the Dow. First yeah. observation. Second observation, look at the underperformance of international. Yeah, it's Year to date brutal. up 4.4. Slacking, yeah. And I have... Um, a comment about that in my tweets, articles, and research, um, a little bit about international. Yeah, man, a lot to do with, uh, I think, the strong dollar over the past Sh month. Strong dollar. Has put a, a dampering on international returns, so that will be something to keep an eye on. Yep. Uh, moving on to headlines and current events from the week, U.S. home sales unexpectedly rose in October, reaching their highest level in nine months. Exip existing home sales increased 0.8% in October, and the median house price rose 13.1% over the last 12 months. Housing supply dropped 12% over the last 12 months. And this is something, Matt, that 
I keep hearing more and more people say, I'm just going to wait until prices calm down. I'm going to wait until prices calm down. And it's like, you might be waiting for a long time. You know, my response when clients say that stuff, I don't disagree with you, Mark. If you find the right house and you're going to be there for a very long time, right. it really doesn't matter if right. you're paying just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. That's just my two cents. Now, if you're looking at it more through the lens of an investment shorter term, then obviously that's correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so another data point regarding U.S. manufacturing that came in positive. The U.S. Richmond Federal Reserve Manufacturing Index came in at 11, and anything over zero indicates expansion over the previous month. Strong. So, yeah, very strong. And uh, the That's index, not bearish, Jenna. <laughs> the index is comprised of shipments, employment, and new orders. Um third thing that went on was uh we just got the job numbers for november this morning matt and the u.s economy added two hundred and ten thousand jobs in november which Ooh. was a big slowdown in hiring and that figure needed to be coming in uh, a little north of four hundred thousand new jobs to be making a dent into the supply chain issues where employment seems to be the biggest issue right now yeah, I'll say it again, you know, you know, listeners, my opinion, you look at inflation, you look at supply chain issues, all tied to employment. There's many reasons why employment is down. But ultimately, we need to see this number north of 400,000. If we're going to be making a dent and have these supply chains ease sometime near the end, of the first half of next year, yeah. I think at this point, if we continue to get these types of numbers, Mark, we're talking probably second half of next year for the supply chain issues. And I will have a piece on an update on supply chains for next week's podcast I was working on earlier this morning. Okay. Um, last thing in terms of news headlines, uh, this came from an update from Sam Rowe, who is a CFA that we've discussed his work before on the show that writes blog posts. He had three facts to talk about uh, at Thanksgiving with family and friends about the market and the economy. Okay. Uh, number one is that initially we, initial weekly claims for unemployment benefits fell to their lowest level since Thanksgiving of 1969, which is a good sign for the labor market. So positive. Love that fact there. Uh, number two was personal incomes ticked higher in October and have been outpacing inflation since February of 2020. Now, that's an important point, a very important point. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to discuss inflation here in a little bit. Say that one more time for listeners. Personal incomes ticked higher in October and have been outpacing inflation since February of 2020. So listeners, even though you've been seeing inflation in many, many parts of the economy, statistically speaking, wages have kept up with that and not only kept up, outpaced. Right, which is important, right? That's a very that's, big data point. And that's another one of those things where the inflation piece is touted all over the media, but no one talks about the personal gains. incomes that are rising. Yeah. 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 It's like it's like going back to the conversation we had last week about um debt to income ratios when people say, oh my gosh, consumer debt is at an all time high. And it but it's like, okay, well debt relative to personal incomes is at a multi decade low, low. Multi decade low. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you need to provide more context with that. Oh, that's just a big point. Um, and finally, businesses are aggressively investing in themselves. Capital goods orders are at record highs and intentions to increase capital expenditures are on the rise. In other words, businesses are buying a lot of equipment right now as they ramp up their operations for future growth. So I think this is positive, in my opinion, just because they're preparing for things getting back to normal eventually. 
This is a huge point, and I made this comment on the podcast back in September. My comment was, as we go into more of a normalization phase of COVID, these companies have been so fiscally conservative since COVID hit. I think the stat that I share with listeners, Mark, is that just the S&P 500, those 500 companies added $2.7 trillion to their cash on the balance sheet since COVID hit. And I think what you're going to see the next couple of years is them put that money to work, whether it's capital expenditures, like Sam is pointing out, which I absolutely agree, whether it's dividend raises, stock buybacks, all that stuff is bullish for equity prices, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So this is a under underneath current that that is in our backs that will definitely help. Yeah, I agree. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the past week, I wanted to discuss an article written by the Schwab Center for Financial Research titled, Does Market Timing Work? And this is always a hot topic of debate, so we'll see if we can get some answers here. All right. Um, so they start off by saying, imagine for a moment that you've just received a year-end bonus or income tax refund. You're not sure whether to invest now or wait. After all, the market recently hit an all-time high. Now imagine that you face this kind of decision every year, sometimes in up markets, other times in downturns. Is there a good rule of thumb to follow? Our research shows that the cost of waiting for the perfect moment to invest typically exceeds the benefit of perfect timing. And because timing the market perfectly is nearly impossible, the best strategy for most of us is not to try to time the market at all. Instead, make a plan and invest as soon as possible. But don't take our word for it. Consider our research on the performance of five hypothetical long-term investors following very different investment strategies. Each received $2,000 at the beginning of the year for the 20 years ended in 2020 and left the money in the stock market as represented by the S&P 500 index. Okay. So the five investors were Perfect Peter, who was a perfect market timer. He had incredible skill or luck and was able to place his $2,000 into the market every year at the lowest closing point. Unrealistic, but this is, <laughs> I'll take it. Ashley Action took a simple yet consistent approach. Each year, once she received her cash, she invested $2,000 in the market on the first trading day of the year. Matthew Monthly divided his annual $2,000 allotment into 12 equal portions, which he invested at the beginning of each month. I like Matthew Monthly. This strategy is known as dollar cost averaging. You may already be doing this through regular investments in your 401k plan or an automatic investment plan, which allows you to deposit money into investments on a set timetable. Okay. Rosie Rotten had incredibly poor timing or perhaps terribly bad luck. She invested her $2,000 each year at the market's peak. Larry Linger left his money in cash investments using treasury bills as a proxy every year and never got around to investing in stocks at all. He always wanted or he was always convinced that lower stock prices were coming and therefore better opportunities to invest his money were just around the corner. And the results are in investing immediately paid off. Okay. So if you guys look at the graph, which if you're watching this on YouTube, Jenna's going to put this on the screen for everyone to see. If not, you can go to our show notes uh, on Twitter at Jessup Wealth or on Facebook or LinkedIn, Jessup Wealth Management, and pull up this article and see this chart that we're going to discuss. And this shows how much hypothetical wealth each of the five investors had accumulated at the end of the 20-year period. 
And this was done, you know, the Schwab Center for Research looked at 76 separate 20 year periods, and they all found similar results across the board for all the time periods. So obviously, as most people could guess, the best results belong to Peter, who waited and timed his annual investments perfectly. He accumulated just over $151,000. But the study's most stunning findings concern Ashley, who came in second with $135,000, only about $16,000 less than perfect Peter. This relatively small difference is especially surprising, considering that Ashley had simply put her money to work as soon as she received it each year. Matthew's dollar cost averaging approach performed nearly as well, earning him third place with just under $135,000 at the end of 20 years. That didn't surprise us. After all, in a typical 12-month period, the market has risen 75.6% of the time. Rosie Rotten's results also proved surprisingly encouraging, while her poor timing left her $14,300 short of Ashley. Uh, who did not try to time investments, Rosie still earned nearly three times what she would have if she hadn't invested in the market at all. Talk about inflation hedge. Right. And what of Larry Linger, the procrastinator who kept waiting for a better opportunity to buy stocks and then didn't buy at all? He fared worst of all with only $44,000. His biggest worry had been investing at a market high. Ironically, had he done that each year, he would have earned far more over the 20-year period. So I think... Matt, what I get out of this article is that, in my opinion, for people to have a plan and to automate things, make it as simple as possible and not stress over this, in my opinion, investing when you get the money right away or dollar cost averaging is probably the best outcome because it's the easiest and you don't have to worry about it. Agreed. Right. Um, You know, it's, you know, that the perfect Peter is obviously a pipe dream for 99.9% of people. Um, And most people have day jobs. They don't need to be worrying about trying to perfectly time the bottom of the market and top tick the top and sell. Um, I'd say if they are, they shouldn't be in the market. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, And I think just because it's mentally easier to dollar cost average because you don't want to invest all the money at once, I think that's probably the way to go for people even though that that slightly underperforms investing the large sum of money on january 1st every single year mentally and emotionally it's easier for people to get over the fact hey if i invest over a 12-month period if the market drops by 20 percent in the first month of the year i'm going to be okay so again i think people should consider dollar cost averaging and they list three um, benefits of that it prevents procrastination minimizes regret and avoids market timing love it so um anything else you want to add there no okay the next piece that i had was just an article uh, by michelle singletary on redesigned social security statements so they finally updated the social security statements and you know back in the day matt they used to um mail social security statements uh to everybody's address but they stopped that because of budget cuts and now you have to go online and register an account at ssa.gov on my social security and you can print off an estimated social security benefit statement now correct okay um 
So what they did is the old social security statements only used to show your benefit at age 62, which is the earliest you're eligible to take social security. Correct. Your full retirement age, and that's depending on when you were born. Usually it's 66 in a couple of months Correct. or 67. And then the last figure they would show is if you delayed your benefit until 70 years old, what would that benefit be? Exactly. But now with the updated statements, they show what the estimated benefit is every year between 62 and 70. So 62, 63, 64, so on and so forth. So it's easier for people to see what the benefit is of waiting. Right. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to remind people, you know, to qualify for Social Security, there are certain criteria you have to meet. And the big ones are you need at least 10 years of work, which is 40 credits to qualify for the retirement benefits. And your benefit amount is based on your highest 35 years of earnings. Okay. So if you have fewer than 35 years of earnings, the years you don't work count as zero, and that could reduce your benefit amount. Yes. Okay. So if you only work for 30 years, you're going to have five years where there's zero in the income column, which is going to artificially, obviously, lower your benefit. Correct. Okay. Um, and the last piece I just wanted people to be aware of is that if you're divorced and you were married for 10 years, you may be able to claim benefits on your ex-spouse's record. Okay. That's an important one. So um, there are talks, Matt, uh, in Congress about restarting the mailing the benefits uh, or excuse me, the estimated benefit statement, just because there are people that don't have, don't have access to a computer. Um, but for right now, uh, you're limited to going online and figuring this out. And this is a, an important piece of people who are five or 10 years away from retirement because this factors into how much income you're going to have in retirement. Yeah. Go to the library, access computers there. I mean, there's there's ways. I'm not saying it's convenient, though, by any means. Right. So definitely something you want to do if you're in that five year period where you're starting to plan or think about retirement, because what you get from Social Security could potentially offset what you have to take out of your 401k or your 4013 or your IRA down the road when you're in retirement. Yep. So um, so go ahead and check out those new estimated benefits statement if you haven't already. Good one. Uh, I'll turn it over to you. All right. So uh, listeners and viewers, I have two pieces this week. The first one is an update on <clears throat> an update on inflation mark outside the US. Okay. So check this out. There was a tweet from Julianne Brigden on November 25th. He's the founder of Microcap Intelligence Two Partners. This is what he said. Quote, while the US is in the inflation sweet spot, i.e. incomes are keeping pace with prices. In Europe, the cost increases are so unprecedented that companies won't be able to fully pass them on to customers. Take Spain, for example, where their producer price index hit 31.9%. Hashtag stagflation is a real threat. So I wanted to bring this up specifically, and we I did post this chart to the show notes. Okay. So, Mark, some think short-term inflation is bad in the U.S. So I saw this tweet. I wanted to put the data into perspective with Europe using Spain as the example. You and I both know there's no way they can fully pass this cost onto the consumer. This is another reason why I'm not as bullish on international equities at this time compared to the U.S. markets. Mm -hmm. So that was the reason I picked this specific piece of data. Yeah. Any comments from you? 
No, it's just, it's interesting. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, we've talked about this before, but the modern portfolio theory thinks that you should always have a certain amount allocated to international equities, emerging markets, so on and so forth. And, you know, if you just look at over the past decade or even two decades, international stocks have been crushed compared to U.S. stocks. And I think people need to wait for that to turn around to consider allocating a large portion of their portfolio to international equities. Absolutely, Mark. I'm going to give you a real life example. Um, a lot of the lifestyle funds or life path funds that mm -hmm. are inside 401k retirement plans, yep. and they're designed to be more conservative when a participant is younger and the closer they get to age 65, it gets more and more conservative. The equity exposure, the percentage of say domestic US versus international, a lot of those funds for whatever stock exposure there is, 40% of that stock exposure is international. That's an average in those types of funds. Mm -hmm. Because because they think, quote unquote, that international stocks are cheaper relative to U.S. stocks, which by any valuation metric is right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they They're have to outperform good. U.S. stocks. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think that just throwing that out there, just that's one of the reasons why I'm not as hot on the lifestyle funds is it the allocations, you know. Just in my sense, in my opinion, I don't like. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I got one more piece for listeners. Um, what happens to the market the following year after being up over 20%? Mm -hmm. This is a tweet from Mr. Thomas of Top Down Charts on November 20th. I love his stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, Jenna posted this chart to our show notes. There is approximately, there's over 15 data points on this. Okay. And it shows, again, greater than 20% years are a good sign for the next year. So in years like this, the average return the next year mark is 11.5%, and it's positive 84% of the time. Mm -hmm. And I just want to throw this out there because what do you think is being said right now in the financial news media? Well, if we're up 20% this year, then it can't keep going next year can't be can't keep going and of all these data sets uh listeners and viewers if you look at this only three of them are negative now obviously next year could be negative that is a potential outcome but i just want to throw this out there that statistically speaking just because we had a good year doesn't necessarily spell doom and gloom for the next year yeah. great data point great chart i would highly encourage the listeners and viewers to definitely check this out yeah strength begets strength yes yes right I mean, you know, I think the psychology of, you know, I'm only going to buy something when it's down. I think you would say first and foremost, it's probably cheap for a reason. Right. Right. It is. Yeah. So back to you. All right. Um, financial planning topic of the week. Um, this was uh, coming from an article written by PlanCorp Women's Initiative titled What to Know About 2021 Year-End Tax Planning and an article written on AARP titled Smart Year-End Tax Moves You Should Make Now, which was written by Alan Roth. Okay. Um, so I wanted to touch on a few points that they both of the articles made if people are looking for a way to help reduce taxable income for 2021. Excellent. Okay. Um, 
They start out by saying, now that we're in the fourth quarter of 2021, it's a good time to start looking at ways to reduce your 2021 tax liability. Even though you might not know your tax liability until you file your tax return in April of 2022, in order to take advantage of some key tax saving tools, many tactics require you to take action before the end of the year. Here are a few tax saving tools to consider. And I also just want to throw it out there. There still is a possibility that next year's tax filing deadline could get pushed back like it has the past two years. However, as of right now, it is April 15th of 2022. But we'll keep people updated with that if that changes. Good to know. Okay. Number one is charitable giving. The American Rescue Plan enacted a 2020 enacted in 2020 provides a temporary above the line deduction in 2021 for up to $300 cash contributions for single taxpayers and 600 for married filing joint taxpayers when the taxpayer takes the standard deduction. So if you've been putting off your charitable giving or have made donations but have not kept appropriate records, make sure to get those done by December 31st of this year to receive a deduction that directly reduces your adjusted gross income. Number two is qualified charitable distributions. If you are 70 and a half or older and have an individual retirement account, then you might want to consider a qualified charitable distribution. Rather than taking a distribution from your IRA and then giving cash or property to a charity, you can make a QCD, which allows for a direct transfer from your IRA to a charity. In turn, you do not recognize the income coming out of your IRA's income, and you do not take a charitable deduction for the amount going to charity. The maximum allowed qualified charitable distribution per taxpayer is $100,000 per year. So here, Matt, a lot of people who are over 72 and have a required minimum distribution, and if they don't need the money, this is a good way of what people can do with their with their rmd is just give it away to charity and you don't have to pay tax on it i love it and i'm glad that the congress made this a, a permanent piece because mm -hmm. for a while there it wasn't i think this is excellent yeah it's phenomenal number three is obviously retirement plan contribution so contributing to a retirement plan not only provides savings for future years but it could also provide a current tax benefit Depending on your income level, you could get a tax deduction for the contributions made to a 401k or IRA. These contributions either directly reduce your taxable wages if funding through an employer-sponsored plan or are taken as a above-the-line deduction on your tax return. In both cases, they directly reduce your AGI. And just uh, to put it out there as well, people ha can make prior-year IRA contributions in 2022 for 2021 before the tax filing deadline. Correct, sir. So people do have a few months in 2022 to make those prior year contributions. But if you're thinking about it now, why don't just get it done now? Right? Yep. Going back to that Schwab survey. Yeah, exactly. Um, 529 plan contributions. Depending on which state you reside in, you can get a state tax benefit for contributions made to a state 529 plan. Missouri, for example, allows up to a $16,000 deduction for married taxpayers filing jointly for contributions made to any 529 plan which is $8,000 deduction for single taxpayers. Not only are you receiving the benefit of tax-free growth, but you also receive a state tax deduction when funding the plan. And this is something that came up when I was meeting with a client too, is they asked if it was you know, deductible from the federal level, and unfortunately it's not. It's all based upon your state. Got it. Well, the show me state showing you deductions. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
I have a couple other things here, Matt. The next is harvest your tax losses from investments held in a taxable account. Okay. You can use an unlimited amount of losses to offset taxable gains. You can usually deduct up to $3,000 in additional losses from your income and carry forward the remaining amount to future years. Wait at least 31 days to buy your losing investment back. If you don't, the IRS will disallow that loss and consider it a tax wash sale. So for listeners that maybe not understanding what a, a wash sale is or the wash sale rule um, defined by the IRS, can you just go over that briefly? Sure. The wash sale rule is this. When you sell a position at a loss and you want to realize that loss on your taxes, they don't allow you to buy that or a like security for 31 days. Mm-hmm. If you do, they deem it to be a wash sale. They disallow the formal uh, credit of that loss on your taxes. Right, right, exactly. But I do want to make people aware that if you sell something in a taxable account at a gain, just to increase your cost basis, if you can first say if you're in the in the boat where you can realize a couple thousand dollars of long term cap gains at a zero percent tax rate, which is possible for some people, you can sell it and rebuy it right away. You can because you're not trying to take a loss government, on it just for government tax purposes. Will happily let you do that. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Okay. Um, the next one is selling your investment winners without paying federal capital gains tax. If you've held your investments for more than one year, you pay a long-term capital gains tax, but the capital gains tax rate happens to be zero at or below the following taxable income thresholds. So if you're single and you have taxable income below $40,400, your long-term cap gains rate is zero. Zero. If you're married filing joint, your taxable income has to be below $80,800 for your long-term cap gains rate to be zero. So if you are in this boat or you think you will be in this boat, get with your advisor to see if you can realize any long-term gains uh, at a 0% tax rate. Absolutely. Um, so they provide an example of this. So for example, a married couple with both spouses being age 65 would have a standard deduction of $27,800. So they can reap an $80,800 gain and have 108,600 to spend without paying federal income taxes. If they had 60,000 in income, they could realize another $48,600 in long-term capital gains and owe no additional federal income taxes. So again, it's just nice to be aware of these certain thresholds because from a a tax planning purpose, if you have long embedded gains in a couple of stocks that you've owned for 20 years and you can step up your cost basis with zero tax liability, why not do that? Yeah, you still still might love the name. Doesn't mean you just can't buy it right back instantly. Right, exactly. Um, So I thought that was timely for people uh, here in the beginning of December to think about some things that they can do to reduce their tax bill. Love it, Mark. Okay. Um, that's all I had on my list, Matt. Anything else uh, you want to leave with listeners before we wrap up for the week? No, I know we've had a lot of market volatility recently with uh, a lot of talk for two topics short term over the past week. Obviously, the latest mutation or variant of coronavirus um, Mm -hmm. has spooked the markets, especially internationally. And I think the second area is the Fed coming out and saying that they're probably going to try to tackle inflation a little bit quicker than they anticipated before. Mm-hmm. And so I would just remind uh, listeners and viewers that this is a time not to be worrying about what the market's going to do next week or the week after and just focus on your longer term goals, 
a lot of this is short-term noise and volatility, and it's going to work its way out. Yeah. Just to bringing people back to square one there. Yep, I agree. I agree. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in to episode number 126 of the Independent Advisors. We hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and we'll be back next week with episode 127. See you then. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.